Hello, it's Robert Bathurst here. I was one of the first guests on My Time Capsule, and Mike has asked me to tell you that you can now listen to the podcast ad-free by subscribing to Acast Plus. Details of how to join are in the description of each episode. Mike says it's very reasonably priced. In fact, Mike says it's a bargain. And who am I to disagree? Locked here in his cellar. Anyway, for a small subscription, Acast Plus, My Time Capsule, ad-free. Free. Unlike me. Cool fact, a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Hello, and welcome to My Time Capsule. I'm Mike Fenton-Stevens, and if you're expecting the BBC News, I'm afraid you've clicked on the wrong button. This is My Time Capsule, the podcast, where I talk to people about the five things from their life that they would like to preserve in a time capsule. They choose four things that they cherish and would wish to keep safe, but they also pick one thing that they rather regret from their life, something they'd like to bury in the ground and never have to think about again. My guest in this episode, episode 133 of My Time Capsule, is the actor, comedian and writer Dan Tetzel, who is probably best known for playing Jim McGinn in 111 episodes of Hollyoaks, until he was killed by Fraser Black. That's a good name for a villain. Yep, out in 111. It's almost cricket. But Dan has been involved in loads of other great shows. As a writer, he's worked on The Museum of Everything, That Was Then, This Is Now, Newsjack and Paperback Hell, which he wrote with his partner Danny Robbins. Together they created the CBBC series Young Dracula and Rudy's Rare Records with Lenny Henry. Dan has acted in Miranda, Psychoville, We Are History, Extras, Lab Rats, Skins, Starlings, Peep Show, Humans, Red Dwarf, Not Going Out, Upstart Crow, and lots of other wonderful things. And he's married to the actor Margaret Cabin Smith. So that's Dan sort of summed up. But it isn't really, is it? As I think you'll find out now as we listen to him telling me the five things he'd like to put in a time capsule. Uh, Dan, all right. Well, we've ruined that. So that's all our chat now. It's gone. That's it. It's done. Yeah. Well, um, okay. Let's have a go. I mean, I never quite know if you've listened to any of them. I sometimes just sort of sneak it in yeah. rather than anything, so I don't have to listen to my intro. That's all. I, you know, where you <laughs> list, where list I... things at the beginning. I don't want to hear that. I do not hear that. <laughs> all so, right. Yeah. So there are five things. Mm-hmm. And four of them are good and one of them's bad. Like, That's it. Clear, haven't I? I've got the format clear. Okay, good. Yeah. So the idea, what I'd like to put in, and it's so it's a CD, but it's um, basically radio comedy is my first thing I'd like to keep in the time capsule. Oh, lovely. The whole concept of radio comedy. 
Because obviously we met one of my first ever jobs. Well, yeah, one of my first ever writing jobs um, was on radio. And uh, the first thing I ever got commissioned on radio was a thing called Paperback Hell. Mm-hmm. Which I remember you were in, and I. But after that point, I'd always, I'd always loved radio comedy. I think it was something that I just enjoyed from a very early age. Partly listening to it, less listening to it, I suppose, when I was younger on the radio, as more tapes. They were then. Yeah. Um, do you remember tapes? Yeah. 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 Sort of. Um, I just, or even I just albums. Yes. Well, that was the thing. We never had a record player growing up. As a, really? my, my father thought we were never a musical, never. I think we had a radio and I think it must have been because I, I must have been 13, 14 before my father bought a real stereo with a CD player on it. He became obsessed with CDs suddenly. Before that, he had a sort of drawer of tapes and I had some tapes and I used to listen to tapes as a kid, you know, bedtime stories. I used to listen to the the Hobbit and the Lord of the Rings and things, and Danny Kaye reading Grimm's fairy tales, I believe. But, yeah, but it was always tapes in the library was a lot of it, was of The Goon Show and Hancock's Half Hour and Round the Horn particularly, mm. I think, was, is always, it remains, if you listen back to it now on BBC Sounds, I think Round the Horn remains almost flawless. I think it's <laughs> one of those perfect shows. The Goon Show you can listen to and sometimes it's amazingly funny, and then sometimes it's an extremely weird time capsule itself. I think radio comedy sometimes, these shows that were massive at the time, you go, I don't understand at all what these people were <laughs> these people in the past were laughing at. These no. long dead people in the Paris studios. What on earth was going on? Uh, but I mean, having done Radio and so whereas radio, is, there's, there's always been a freer thing. And um, you listen to a lot of radio comedy, partly because of their parents giving it to them. And, and stuff and you don't know. Web- yeah, bits and pieces that I don't know, or that I haven't, you know, I, to be honest, I never listened to the Mitchell Webb sound because I thought, oh, I know all of them. You know, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> sometimes you just don't listen to it. Like, you go, oh, I just know them. I don't need to listen to their show. I know them. Um, but she listens to that, and she has a great time. And the other day, my kids were spending time, and my daughter's 12 and my son's 6, and Tom was sitting in his sister's room like he does, like he enjoys it, reading a book. And then Amy put on a CD of uh, Saturday Night Fry, and Tom asked, what's this? And he said, Saturday Night Fry, and he went, oh, goody, this is funny. And I've never felt prouder, I think, of parenting than that. <laughs> well, obviously I have. But yeah. it was a moment of uh, nerdiness where I go, yeah, I've, yeah, they've done all right. Again, you know, it's not all YouTube videos of Minecraft playing. The next time they listen to that Mitchell and Webb sound, see if you can spot my laugh in it. Mm. I, I, I do a very sort of, ha, laugh. Like that. And look, I don't want to put into the time capsule that I don't like the Mitchell Web sound. I do. It's just oh, right. uh, contemporaneously <laughs> they were. We were working on radio at the same time. Um, and it, it was sort of something that that my dad introduced me to, you know, he sort of the Goon Show and Hancock and and Round the Horn, as I say. And really, the, I suppose this is where I want, what the thing I want to put in, and this is a bit odd, and I know this is going to sound like me sucking up, but it's a particular episode of radioactive. Uh, <laughs> oh, no. <laughs> because, no, it really is, honestly. So my dad died about 20 years ago, and um, and I don't really remember much about him. Even though I was 25 at the time, it's just I don't think I got to know him very well as an adult. Um, and I remember going on holiday with him when I was, I suppose I must have been about 10 or 11, and we went to Scotland 
Uh, and then one night we were listening to, in the hotel, we listened to Radioactive on this live going out. So it must have been about 11. Would it have gone out at about 11 or was it mm -hmm. 6.30? Yeah. No, both times. Yeah, it went out in the morning and in the evening. Yeah. Oh, right. Yeah. So I think this was a late one, I think, because um, I remember it being particularly special because it was the two of us and on holiday and late. It gets a bit blurred, but I think it's the episode where Martin Brown tries stand-up. It's either that one or where someone gets shrunk down and the antidote is a suppository. <laughs> I've got a very clear memory of that happening as well. <laughs> and I can't remember if that was Martin Brown. But um, for people who don't know, I played Yes, Martin exactly. Well, this is, so, listeners, I am essentially sucking up to the host here <laughs> uh, in the hope of getting six items in. I don't think it'll work. But I just remember it being a perfect moment. And I associated it with Radioactive. So my first radio job that my partner, writing partner, Danny Robbins, and I had got commissioned, but from the uh, pilot of Way Hey Hey with the Monks, which is uh, a long and painful story, the happy story we had on radio was uh, Paperback Hell, which we did three series of, yeah. which was uh, Rebecca Front, who oh, obviously the day-to-day -day was, you know, she was amazing, and, and Alex Lowe, who, you know, we'd seen around and was just... I think a radio comedy is very special. I think it, the way it affects people, because it's in your ears or it's in your mind, I don't know what it is, but... It's pure and fun in a way because I think partly now looking back on it, partly because I know how it's made, there is so few layers between the idea, the original idea and the audience. In a way, there is just the writer, a producer, a cast, and literally the audience is often in the same room as you. Yeah. And because you're not learning it, because there are no sets, no props, there's a speed and an immediacy that allows extraordinary things to happen, but also gives a lot of freedom to everyone involved and you can do things as a performer that you you can't do on television that you can't as a sketch performer certainly there are moments where you can just just change your voice and it's fun and you're suddenly in a new place and it's it's some of the most performing radio and listening to it are together some of my happiest moments i think um writing it sometimes has been some of my unhappiest moments but that's a different matter <laughs> uh we'll come to those later but um, there is definitely an intimacy to radio comedy yeah. that you wouldn't get yeah, on yeah. television. Television is a joint thing. Lots of people, you talk about, did we all watch this? Whereas radio, I think you feel as if they're doing it just for you. Yes, absolutely. Yeah. And yeah, so I you and your dad sitting there listening to this together and sharing that experience, that <laughs> must have felt a very intimate thing and a very personal thing between the two of you. Yeah, I think two of the great things of radio, you know, is knowing uh, Ford Prefect. Jeffrey McGiven and knowing mm -hmm. Martin Brown. They, they were two of my <laughs> earliest, uh, you know, joyous memories, I think. And um, I'm terribly old now, obviously, and uh, jaded. But um, I think, yeah, I think they, I think hopefully, you know, radio comedy will continue, even though it's being sucked slightly dry and edged out of the schedule because there is only Radio 4, no one else does it. There are podcasts, but mm. they are often just this, it's just people talking. But I still think, I think there's a special place in my heart, certainly, and I, I know a lot of people... I know the reaction to um, my wife does John Finmore's souvenir program, mm. and the reaction to that is extraordinary. And I, I love it. I love the fact that it's got fans that are just across all ages, and it, it's a real emotional attachment. John's and, managed um, to do that over and over again, doesn't he? Cabin. Yeah, pressure. yeah. I mean, I did. I did a couple of cabin pressure rehearsals. I mean, no, not rehearsals. That sounds like I got sacked. Um, <laughs> re actual recordings. I did the rehearsals, then they kept me on, and I did the recording. Um, and um, they were extraordinary. They were the most rock and roll radio I've ever seen. And the audience were mainly young women, which is brilliant. Yeah. Some of them were there for Benedict Cumberbatch, but a lot of them were there for John and 
Roger Allen and mm. definitely Coles, three of the least rock and roll people in the world. <laughs> uh, no offence to any of them. Um, when I think amazing. back to the recordings of, of Radioactive, and that particular recording of Radioactive that you mentioned, where Martin mm. Brown learns to be a stand-up comedian, <laughs> there's a joke that he does right at the end when he's trying to understand what comedy is. And he says, I wanted to go on holiday to Norway. I think it's something like that, isn't it? I wanted to go on <laughs> holiday to, yes, yeah, yeah. to Norway, but I I, um, I couldn't afford it. And the reaction of the audience <laughs> to that moment, I remember that episode particularly because of that mm. moment when this audience just was so excited for this fictional character. And I think that does demonstrate what can be done on radio. Absolutely. It's, I mean, he stays with me, you know, Martin Brown, and he keeps popping up every now and again when I'm, you know, there are, I've definitely written characters. I mean, I think the pilot for a show called Hey Hey with the Monks, which would had um, Bill Bailey as an unlikely monk, mm. um, there was a character in it played by Fergus Craig, who was basically Martin Brown, looking back on it, was essentially <laughs> just as Martin Brown as a monk. I mean, those voices stay with you, I think, as, a, as they, they're influential, the uh, I know that when um, I did a show called Newsjack on 4 Extra, or Radio 7, what it, when we started, which was an open-door show for new writers, and I was script-editing it. And I was there so for the development of the first, you know, the pilot and the first series and the first and second series. And Mike, not Mike, you're Mike, <laughs> uh, Miles Jupp was the lead. And Miles Jupp, essentially, is Kenneth Horne. Mm. He has exactly the same tone and exactly the same skill of being absolutely in charge and absolutely silly at the same time, <laughs> allowing nonsense to happen all around him and grounding it. And I, without really realising it and then slowly realising it and thinking, oh, actually, this helps, I was writing his scripts in the voice of Kenneth Horne. Mm. I think I was trying to get there. And that wasn't theft so much as just just it, it become part of your DNA, I think. It stays with you, and that's radio comedy, I think, more than anything else. Mm. because it goes straight into your head and your heart and, you know, stays with you. So, yes, I'd like to put all of it in a sealed box and lock it away for a thousand years. Is that all right? <laughs> Deprive <laughs> everybody of it. Is that the premise? It. Is that how long? <laughs> yeah, yeah, is that what's happened? No, just that one episode of Radioactive as a symbolic uh, gesture, ah, please. Thank you very much. Well, I'm delighted. I'm very no, honoured. No, very honoured. All right, And that you, goes you in. have to go inside the box as well. I, I, I obviously yeah, have to yeah, sit in yeah. there, and any time you want me to, I have yeah, to perform it. terrible. I sit there with a script on my knee, yes. waiting. Yeah. <laughs> okay. Well, if I can take the rest of the cast in with me, particularly Jeffrey Perkins, yes, I'll be a very true. happy man. Oh, yeah, yeah. Mm. Yeah. Okay. Let's move on to item number two. <laughs> Well, since you're, I mean, this is an easy one. This is, I mean, since you are locked in the time capsule as well, you can eat these. These are um, Tang Fastics by Haribo. It's just oh. a nice sweet. I really <laughs> like them. I just really like Tang Fastics. And uh, this is very simple. There's no emotional Proustian rush here. I just really like them. I think they're the best sweet. And I, I'd like to put them in the time capsule. Very simple with <laughs> this one. I like all Haribo. Oh, let me make that very clear. Mm. Apart from the lick, even the licorice ones, actually, the salty licorice ones that you get from Denmark, which are very oh. weird. Like I don't know those, people. and I thought I knew all Haribo because I you love Haribo. S- I know exactly. You've got to get yourself down to like the Swedish shop in um, central London, or one of those weird, um, you know, those. I don't know. This is maybe London centric for your listeners, but in central London, there are a lot of places called King of Sweets or World of Sweets, mm-hmm. which are in these big industrial units in central London that no one can afford to be in. 
And I think there is evidence to suggest they're laundering, money laundering schemes for drug dealers. (laughs) But they do sell a wide range of sweets. And I've got a very sweet tooth, and I do have an extraordinary sweet tooth. I'm not a big chocolate fan. I like a very sweet, synthetic, sort of chewy sweet, essentially. Haribo. And so you get yourself down there, and you can find some very odd Haribo. You know, the sour ones. Yeah, tangfastic. Tangfastics are the ones I want to put in there, the sour ones. <laughs> yeah, they uh, are sort of, sour, you know, aren't they? They're, they're really sharp. I like the sour. Yeah, mm. I like something sharp. Yeah, exactly. That's what I think makes me feel like an adult when I eat a whole packet on my own. You know, go, well, these are sour. I mean, children wouldn't like these. These are for adults. This is just like, you know, this is like South Park. This isn't for children. This is, it's, they're clearly for children. They're sweets, but I do like enjoy it. You know, I sometimes, uh, you know. I'll eat a small packet of milk bottles from Tesco if I go into, you know, maybe if I'm buying, I'm doing a shop and I see there are three packets of sweets for a pound, I'll buy my kids some sweets and then, oh, there's a third packet I need to eat. (laughs) Just maybe, maybe maybe I'll have some milk bottles or something like that. Mm. Very childish palate. You know, I eat goat's cheese, I eat lots of things. I eat, you know, I have a sorbet, (laughs) I, I like very dry martinis. But also I... Really like Tangfastics. I can't stress this enough. And I, I would like one of the joy. I did a podcast uh, with Richard Herring and Emma Kennedy uh, called As It Occurs to Me. And mainly one of the joys every week was seeing some people hanging out. And we all brought in big packets of Haribo. Because everyone liked Haribo. <laughs> so it was just, uh, it, honestly, that was one of the highlights. And I got disappointed if people didn't. So uh, yeah, <laughs> that was nice. I have to say, one of the curses of uh, lockdown for me was that I decided I'm not going to go into a sweet shop. I'm not going to yeah. buy sweets and risk my life for them. So instead, oh, I went onto Amazon. <laughs> and, of course, there you can only buy industrial-sized packets of yeah. these sweets. And I yeah, yeah, did yeah. buy a box of Haribo, 10 packets, but each packet turned out to be two kilograms. Hence my enormous lockdown belly. (laughs) What type of Haribo? They were the mixed ones, eggs and jelly babies in it. Traditional, the real classic, I believe. Yes, yeah, yeah. yeah. Really, not enough tango. Exactly. You see, that's why the fantastic stuff so tangfastic. But the um, (laughs) the what what you don't want is one of those tiny little bags that they give out in children's party bags, the ten p bags that are just (laughs) just an insult. It's just like three. (laughs) Fuck off! Come on. Each sweet is miniature as well, isn't it? As if a child's not going to notice that. As if a child's going to go, hang on a minute, I've just had a really great big bag of Haribo here. Look, I can tell because there were 20 sweets in it. You go, no, they're they're all tiny. Yes, yeah. No, we're not having it. But no, I want a full-size bag of Tangfastics, please, in there. Okay. So that in the future, people will know how we ate in our day, (laughs) the height of civilization, you know, before the fall of civilization. Yes, we like things that were sweet and sour. Yeah, yeah, we were complex people, you know. It's like the <laughs> Romans eating everyone's brains in vinegar and, think, you know, the disgusting things the Romans ate. Fish that had gone off. Yeah, no wonder they were so angry and you know, <laughs> aggressive. we'd have our empire still if we didn't have... Yeah, <laughs> you blame the fall of the British Empire a good thing. on tangfastic. Or I congratulate the fall. You know, it's, I'm not saying we should have an empire. I'm saying it's a bad thing. That I think I'd rather have tangfastics than an empire. Yeah. That's fine. Let's put... Tangfastic Haribo sweets, five hundred gram packet, or should it Lovely. be? Lovely, yeah, that'll do. Yeah, yeah that'll do. Yeah, 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 yeah. Okay. The great thing, of course, is that I shall make it so that they are replaceable. So that if anybody oh, ever yeah, yeah. accidentally opens this time capsule, and I'm not suggesting that anybody would, Dan, 
Yeah, yeah. You know, and they happen to sneak that packet out. <laughs> when they next look, it'll be back there. Lovely. Yeah, okay. good. Well, yeah, right. I mean, it's only one packet. I'm keeping all the rest outside. <laughs> um, okay. So, but, now, so I did a play called The Wipers Times, written by Inhys Lop and Nick Newman, in Newbury, the Watermill Theatre, and then we transferred to the Arts Theatre in London after a, a sort of short tour. And on the press night of uh, the Arts Theatre, I gave all the other members of the cast a parody newspaper. Basically, The Wipers Times is based on... It's a real story about some uh, soldiers from the Foresters um, Derbyshire Regiment mm. uh, in the First World War who found a printing press and started printing a comic newspaper that was distributed through the trenches, essentially. Um, Wipers, as in Ypres. Ypres. Ypres, Ypres, yeah, Ypres, yeah. Ypres, Ypres. yeah, and it's um, it's a fascinating story, and we we it was a you know really good play to do and fun, and we ended up doing a bit of it at the anniversary performance in Ypres for the hundredth anniversary of the the battle. Oh wow! Uh, it was sort of there was a whole evening of entertainment of Michael Bublé, not Michael Bublé. Um, who's the English Michael Bublé? What's he called? Michael um, Bald. Michael, no, the other one, uh, Alfie Bow. Alfie, <laughs> Alfie Bow. Alfie Bow, yeah. Alfie Bow was a sort of soldier singing sentimental songs and then Danny Mays read some poems and uh, there were marching bands and Warhorse turned up. And then there was a section where Ian has sort of introduced us and they projected his face terrifyingly onto Ypres Cloth Hall. <laughs> and then we came on and we did some bits of the play in front of, you know, collected European royalty, which was fascinating and, you know, terrible at the same time. And we got to see the actual place where they found the printer and all this business. So for the press night of the London run of this play, uh, I did a parody. I printed a, up a parody version of The Wipers Times called The Wipers Times Times, <laughs> uh, which was full of in-jokes and may have been the most time-consuming and yet tiny to, to audience size thing I've ever done in my life. And there, was about, there were about eight people who get the jokes in this. And... <laughs> Uh, it took me weeks, uh, months maybe, of quite hard sort of not only working out writing it but also getting the fonts right and the layout and all this business. So yeah. it was a lot of time and effort that could have been better spent. But I don't think it could have been better spent But because it's fun and, you know, I've definitely done things that have got fewer laughs from fewer people because <laughs> I've done Edinburgh shows. You know, I did a topical comedy show on BBC Choice, which there's no evidence anyone ever saw other than the editor. <laughs> uh, so it's definitely, it was good, but that's the item. But the, what that symbolises is press nights, um, theatrical press nights. Because I've only done two plays, essentially, and they were both written by Ian Hislop and Nick Newman. So maybe I've got a limited experience. Uh, but the press nights of both of them have been just joyful. Um, and it's odd because I knew a lot of the other actors involved were very stressed, and I know a lot of actors don't like press nights, but I found them um, exhilarating and winnable. And I think that's what I've sometimes you I found often frustrating about theatre. It just goes on, obviously, and it's brilliant, and you can improve it and build on it, and it, you, you sit in it more and more. But it's very rare that you can win, as it were. And I like the idea that there were people out there in the literally judging us. Not a hostile audience. I don't like the hot no one likes the hostile audience, but I liked the idea that there was a combative nature to the evening. Mm. It wasn't just part of the run. It wasn't just another show. It was this very specific show where someone was out there judging us with a pen and pencil. <laughs> and I could just it just felt like, yeah, well, fuck you, woman from the evening standard. 
And actually, in retrospect, yeah, fuck you, woman from the Evening Standard. That was a terrible <laughs> review. But <laughs> while we were performing, I felt it's one of the rare times in my life where I felt utterly and completely in control, like sort of higher state of being almost, where you just felt, sorry, burps. You see, exactly. <laughs> normally I have no control over myself. But then I felt, <laughs> I felt like a superhuman, honestly feeling like this is the best I can do. This is the operational paradigm. This is it. This is perfect. So I'm doing this. And it felt like that on press nights because there is that sort of element of just gladiatorial combat. It's it's a weird thing. It felt like I was, it just felt so often in television and writing and, and radio, you, maybe you write something and it goes away for ages and it comes back and you, then it dies or it gets made and then it dies or whatever. Or you're, you film something and then, Months later, you might see the edit and, oh, it's all the back of my head. Oh, that's interesting. Mm. And it's it just withers away, whereas actually those press nights felt like a perfect moment of control because you are not only are you controlling the camera, which is where people are looking, but you're also controlling everything about that show for, a moment, for that moment where you're on and you're in control. And not to say I was just talking over others' lives, but it also felt like working with people. Suddenly you were working in a very unit and you were helping each other. And it just felt, it summed up what was great about theatre, but also with an added element of, yes, go on, let's get these fuckers. <laughs> <laughs> you sometimes lose. You sometimes, in a long run, you can lose. And you sort of, you've, you know... You yeah, go, and oh, also in the other forms, well. like radio and television, things are editable. Nothing's vital, as it would be in that situation. And also you think, so, well, actually, if all those people who are going to judge us and tell other people whether we're worth watching are all in the room together, this is the yeah. moment where we have to do it. And you sort of yeah. go, okay, well, let's let's bloody do it. Let's, let's fucking get out there and show them. And I, I agree with you. I like that. I really enjoy those moments. Oh, that's I, good. good. I, I love opening nights. You know, I love the terror of it. And I, love the, <laughs> yeah. I love the fact that you are with a group of people and saying, well, come on, we've all practiced this. We know what we can do. Remember what we did in that room with no props and no lights and nothing. And I love it. Yeah, I mean, there was a moment in that in that one press night, uh, second scene, our lead actor dried in the bit where he's coming up with the name The Wipers Times. <laughs> so it's a, it was quite, a, quite an important moment. Um, he dried and then there was a moment of panic in the guys who had the other lines, and then one of them sort of looked at me and then said his his line that he was supposed to say a couple of lines down, but now it made sort of no sense, which just sort of looped us back into this this death spiral of this scene <laughs> never ending. And I just felt suddenly so in control that I sort of felt like almost an out of body experience of going, oh, this is. I saw the whole singularity of existence almost in that moment of just, <laughs> I, am, I am on a higher plane. I know exactly how we're going to get out of this. And we just got out of it and it was fine. And then later on, it was just, I don't know if you've seen that terrible, uh, Sh- uh, not Shane Ritchie, what's his name? Ritchie, the uh, film director. So, Guy Ritchie. Anyway, Sherlock. Guy Ritchie, his Sherlock. That scene where Sherlock is, works out all the moves in a fight before he does it. It yeah. felt like that. It felt that sort of immense power. <laughs> just going, I know exactly how I'm going to say these next five lines, and I know exactly how I'm going to stand, and I'm going to fucking blow them away. And it's, and I've, ne- I don't think I've ever felt more confident and at home in myself and in a moment than those press nights. 
Mm. Um, I mean, you know, the plays had their problems, obviously, uh, uh, and, and, and in the long run, you, you have some good nights and some terrible nights, and we still had to do the jig at the end where everyone walks down and does a dance, to, <laughs> which, I was, which I was very much against. <laughs> and I... I stand by my being against it to this very day. But um, <laughs> but for those few moments, I honestly, I've never felt, uh, yeah, it was just, I probably have felt as happy and, you know, both the children and all that business, you know, getting married. But uh, I just pressed nights. It brought something out of me that I just, I liked. There was a sort of acceptable level of arrogance that I think you need. Mm-hmm. And I found it, I think, you know, as an actor or a performer or a writer, you need that just confidence without overstepping the mark. Yeah, I share that confidence. Unfortunately, I do often overstep the mark. <laughs> yeah, overstep, understep. It's it's a very hard mark to hit. It's yeah. sort of impossible. To, um... Yes, I enjoy the process of thinking, particularly with comedy, thinking, well, I know how to get a laugh with this. I wonder yeah. if you can get a laugh by doing this. Yes, yes, yes. You know, yes, and doing absolutely. something that, that really oughtn't to be funny and seeing if you can make it funny. I enjoy that process. I enjoy that, yeah, that yeah. gamble of it. Yes, and Nick and Ian, the writers, were very forgiving of my occasional writerly tendency to try and fix bits <laughs> on the fly <laughs> when they occurred to me on the on the stage. As we, and as the run got towards its end, how I thought, no, if I don't try this joke now, I'm never going to try it. And they were very <laughs> forgiving. But uh, yeah, they were. Yeah, it was a. Uh, I think, yeah, I missed, um, basically this is a plead. If someone put me in a theatre, I love theatre and I'd like to do it again. Yeah, I think it is a good plea, though. I think anybody who hears an actor say, I love press nights, I don't find them daunting at all. I, I find them <laughs> exciting and I want to go out there and show these people. Yeah, yeah. That, just bring know, me into is... that and then I'll just get someone else to do the run. I'll just do the <laughs> bit at the beginning. Well, it sounds almost as if you'd quite like that. Well, in a way, I mean, there is some. I mean, that was the hardest thing about coming into theatre after years of doing not theatre, you know, not theatre. I remember there was a very early in the run at the Watermill, which is a lovely theatre, but mm. very, very intimate, very intimate, and they're sort of feet away from you at all times, the audience. But there was a moment where I just, I think it may have been even the second night where I got something wrong, and um, in a scene, it was a bit of a tongue twister, and I just stumbled over it, and I just went. <clears throat> and in my head, I'd cut. I'd just, I was waiting for the director or the first AD to go, all right, let's go again. And I realised, as my, as my head went down, I went, Ugh. oh, I can't do that. Oh, I'm stuck. So I had to come back up. I had to build this into the character of just sort of, oh, I'm so exasperated with you, Captain so-and-so. And just... And all I heard from the back was just the director laughing. The silence in the rest of the audience as they recognised that I dried horribly. And then just one woman laughing at me. Uh, it was, that yes. was even, even that was good because it was just, you know, fun and live. And it is what is fun and live. And I have a mm. terrible tendency as an actor to completely drop out of character and break the fourth wall. <laughs> I will, in the middle of quite a serious play, if something goes wrong, I will turn to the audience and say, well, that wasn't supposed to happen. <laughs> it always works well. The audience are, oh, very pleased. And then we go yes, back into yeah, it. Yeah, everybody yeah, says, what yeah, are you doing? Yeah. You can't you can't admit no, that they're no, there. I know. Yes, to look at them and give them a, yeah, give them a side eye. I love the idea of the wipers times times. Mm. I think that making an effort with first night presence, because if anybody doesn't know, it's sort of traditional for actors to give each other a card or something. But actually making an effort with presence is really nice. People do appreciate it when people make that effort. 
Yeah. I, t- I tend to give people uh, a mug, often with my face on. You know, I mean, everybody in the theatre, one of the things that is always missing is a mug for a coffee in mm. between shows. Oh, absolutely, yeah, so yeah. I, yeah. I say to people, you know, I've made a mug, and it's usually, you know, good luck and everything, but it quite often has my face on it. <laughs> Not at all egotistical. But, you know, well done for doing a, a really good first night present and well done for not letting people with a piece of paper and a pen sitting in an audience intimidate you. No, yes, it was good. It was, I, uh, yeah, I, I miss it. I miss that uh, rush. Yeah, no offence to the Zoom podcast, obviously, or the podcast, <laughs> no. but it, it doesn't live up to it, does it? Is it not my heart's going, God, ten to the dozen? Yeah, yeah ten that. to the dozen. That's not right. Anyway, <laughs> <laughs> so we will put in press notes into the time capsule. That's brilliant. Right, we've got two left. Right, while I recover from being put in a time capsule myself, we're going to take a short break for some ads or news of our sponsors. We'll be back in a second. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Welcome back. Let's find out what else Dan Tetzel would like to put in his time capsule. And as I'm in there, I hope it's a pub. Okay, so this item I'm putting in is um, a DVD, this one, of The Larry Sanders Show, uh, Season 6, Episode 3. Um, <laughs> very specific, that one. I don't know if you've ever seen it. It's where Hank, Jeffrey Tambo, who plays Larry Sanders' sidekick on the chat show, mm-hmm. is facing up to the idea that the, the show is ending. It's the last season of Larry Sanders as well as the show within the show. And um, he goes and tries to restart his acting career. And as with everything that, that, that Jeffrey Tamble does in that, in that show, it is uh, painful, painful to behold and hilarious. But um, one of the jobs he goes for is a bit part on the sitcom Caroline in the City. And the showrunner at the time of Caroline in the City, who appears as himself, was, is a chap called Fred Barron. And Fred Barron is someone I work with on a show called According to Bex, which um, was his follow-up to My Family, and um, mm. it was famous for a while as being one of the worst things ever shown on BBC 
BBC One and was a, a mammoth, mammoth failure. But the th- <laughs> I'm not putting that mammoth failure in. What I'm putting in as a good thing is what we did there was he ran a writer's room, like, and what he, as he did on My Family. I never worked on My Family, mm-hmm. but on According to Bex, and then the, then the next one he did called After You've Gone with the Chen Nicholas Lindhurst and Celia Emery in it and was, was more successful. Actually, anything could have been more successful. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> really was very unsuccessful. But uh, there was a writer's room. So he ran it like an American writer's room to, to a certain extent um, where we would break the stories together and... By break, I mean work out what was happening in every episode and then Mm -hmm. people would go away with certain episodes and they would write those up into outlines of those episodes and then we would come back and we'd talk about those outlines and punch them up and make them funnier and make the stories work. Then people would go away and write those scripts and then the whole process would carry on bit by bit, a process of um, just improving and then there would be read-throughs. So he would record on the Thursday or Friday and on the Monday there would be a read-through of the next week's script Mm. and we would read it once talk about it, Fred would give some notes, the actors would read it again, then we would go away and rewrite it, almost entirely sometimes, based on how well that read-through went. And it's, it's it's sort of the American system, and there would be rewrites all the way through the week, and then the whole process would begin again after the recording mm. on Friday. And it is a brilliant way of working, and it's I think a writer's room is, again, just a very happy place for me. It's a place where I feel useful (laughs) but also where I you know useful in a way that I think yes this is where I'm at my best professionally because it's a place where it's a very forgiving place I mean you can get you get a lot of I've heard a lot of stories about you know you can hear them about American rooms where showrunners are a nightmare and abusive and and Roseanne would make people wear numbers because she never wanted to learn their names and Fred was never like that obviously and I've never worked in a room like that I've never worked with an arsehole like that because partly because maybe they don't do they don't exist in England as much. Oh no, obviously arseholes exist in England as much, or UK, <laughs> but they don't. That way of working on shows doesn't exist as much, and so it's not as much of a an industry as it is in America. But it is a very good way of writing comedy, and it's you see it on radio shows sometimes, like the uh, topical shows particularly, and mm-hmm. like that. Um, and also, you know, in sketch groups, that's how sometimes we would work. You know, you would someone would write up the idea and then we would you know, knock it about and put it on its feet and change it and rewrite it. And I think that collaborative way of working is so specifically suited and, and brilliant to to some types of comedy that I, it's just my ideal way of working, I think, sitting in a room with like-minded people. Mm. And I don't mean identical, though obviously in the past it sometimes has been identical sort of middle-aged white men in with, like, <laughs> with yes. glasses and beards and hair, you know, you know, um, but people who are all focused on making something funny and bringing their ideas in a very open way. And the best rooms are very open because you have to give yourself. You have to bring yourself to the writing. It's and it stops just, being a competitive thing as well, doesn't it? Yeah, it, it, it can, I think it can be. Yeah, the, at the best. It's competitive in the best way. I write on my own these days um, and mainly sort of more dramary stuff. And I miss that. I miss writing in a room. I miss bouncing ideas off people, helping other people get their ideas to a place having my ideas brought up by everyone else. And I think it's such a shame that the UK never found a way of doing it that was financially viable for them. Yes, unfortunately, always, we could never do the thing that they do in America, which is which really sort of hones mm. the thing, which is that you do two recordings, is that you perform in front of an yeah. audience. Yeah, yeah. 
And then having seen how it goes in front of an audience, you then take that audience out, bring a new audience in and do it again. Yeah, it is an extraordinary process. Yes, particularly, I think, for studio comedies, much maligned at the moment, studio comedies. It is almost the only way to do it because you are going for laughs per page. You're going for a density of jokes and that's a density of ideas as well. I think you can... I mean, I'm not one of these, oh, it's not comedy if it doesn't have jokes types. I'm not strict on that. You know, but I do like comedies that have a lot of jokes in them mm-hmm. uh you know things like 30 rock which are and brooklyn 99 which are american shows but are almost studio in their sensibilities almost mm. studio sitcom they're single camera but shot in you know written in a way as to make it very very dense and gag heavy and you get that from a room realizing people's strengths and weaknesses and i miss it and i haven't done it for a while and but i do think it is my happy place, I think, that, that mm. sort of putting a, ro- a room of writers together is just a sort of joyous idea. I mean, in, in, you know, in my career at the moment, the idea of even having a read-through is an unimaginable success. And so, <laughs> but there is, a, there is a dream of then of, of finding that room again, of putting some people together and, 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 and even for just punching up for a couple of days of just additional yeah. material on something. And I always say, and I stand by it, that there are a lot of script editors at work and some of them are in the industry and some are very good, but I would rather, if you're paying them £600 an episode, I would rather give that to another writer, other two writers for half a day or whatever, mm-hmm. because I think those completely different sensibilities will always make something better, you know, bring in the outside. And I think... Um, it's a great way for somebody out. who's not in a position to be writing their own individual show yeah, as well, yeah. to be yeah, brought yeah, in yeah. and to learn the craft, I think, yeah. Yes, I mean, that's partly why we have so few writers, I think, is that there aren't places for anyone to learn anymore. And this radio newsjack is, is a bit, you know, but that's sketches and there's not much, you know, once you've written sketches, there are no sketch shows to write for except on kids' shows. And then where do you, you know, so it's a, it's an, it's a weird, there isn't a development ladder for comedy as there is for drama. There aren't things like Doctors or EastEnders or Casualty where you can then end up writing Peaky Blinders. Uh, that's that's the only other thing. I, just, I don't think anyone ends up writing Peaky Blinders. Let's make that clear. That's very, but there are other shows where you can then develop things. But comedy, there isn't that. There are very few chances to... Um, and that has disappeared. That's not as if there, there never was. There always no, was. No, no, absolutely. I mean, yeah, in yeah. fact, as you go back to what you said at the beginning, radio comedy was the source whereby mm. you discovered great writers. Yeah, I mean, and there's a, I mean, there's certainly a tendency now... Uh, fashion on on radio for particularly for a lot of authored stand-up sideways looks shows mm-hmm. <laughs> and it's great and i've been in you know authored stand-up shows shows looks i've been sidekicks in those but they don't lead necessarily to anything other than more of those you're not telling a story in the same way but again this is basically <laughs> me just uh, uh begging for work but if you ever need <laughs> someone to sit in the corner of a room and you know help with your ideas i think there's a just and also the there were a few years ago, quite a few years ago now, obviously this is a story about friends. So obviously this has been off the air for 10 years, as we know. But there was a there was a court case, a famous court case, where the writer's assistant sued the writers for toxic workplace and unfair dismissal. And because it's American, the, the deposition is available. I think you can still find it on the internet. And it's a description of essentially, A, yes, slightly toxic workplace, B, probably unfair dismissal, but C, also how funny it can be to be sitting in a writer's room because it was all the things that don't go into the scripts that never leave the room. It's a very clear line about none of this leaves the room. And so people are talking openly about, and they need to talk openly about themselves and about their feelings and about thoughts and and, and have a chance to fail. But also you need to vent 
things you can't say anywhere else. And I'm, this isn't a call for PC is ruining comedy. I'm absolutely... No, but, but you need you, to say things about the actors. No, you have to be absolutely horribly rude about them, even yeah. if you like them, because that's part of the... You know, that's where you vent, and otherwise you end up putting it in the script, and then it becomes... But So I recommend reading that, because it's full of very, very funny jokes that, admittedly, if you were there at the time, might have been horrible and not pleasant to witness if you were the writer's assistant. I now, looking back, recognise that. At the time, I thought it was a ridiculous court case, but now I recognise, yeah, maybe, uh, yeah, yeah, six of one, half a dozen the other, yeah. Mm. Uh, but yes, yeah, so I recommend reading that because that sums up, in a way, the best, as well as the worst, of a writer's room, of just that freedom of people, very clever people, being very clever and having fun. That camaraderie is something I'd like to save. Lovely. We should put writer's rooms... Lovely. Into the time capsule. It might be a bit smelly and messy, mm-hmm. but uh, they can be. Well, at least <laughs> everybody's not smoking in them like they used no, to. No, that's true. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Fantastic. So we come to your final item, which uh, is something that you want to get rid of. Right. So the item here is an unfinished novel, uh, my, my unfinished novel. <laughs> what? One of them, I presume. Um, there may have been <laughs> others started over the years. I can't And so it's, essentially, it's me. I'd like to get rid of me. Uh, <laughs> and I'd like to put me in the time capsule so that someone else can deal with me in the in the future. But um, I am obviously my own worst enemy um, because everyone is their own worst enemy. And I think, you know, part of this, uh, the talk about mental health that goes on these days, I'm going to sound like Lawrence Fox saying that, but I, I, this is all positive. <laughs> I mean, it's not, oh, it's nonsense. I mean, no, and it's good and that's healthy. But it is, uh, it is also a point where we all go, yeah, we do, we're all mental and uh, we're all, damaged in a way and 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 i there are so many bits of me that annoy the shit out of me and i recognize them i'm aware enough to recognize them but not too lazy maybe i don't know to do anything about them and and so they become this sort of constant loop of just constant tiresome holding myself back self-sabotage but also then the arrogance to believe that I could, there is anything to sabotage. Um, you know, there you go. I'm like, I'm no, no one's, no one's waiting for this unfinished novel, Dan. You just either finish it or don't. No one cares. Um, <laughs> like, for instance, um, regret. I'm terrible for ruining. I regret everything. Je regrette everything, essentially, is my point. Is that I'm woken at night by uh, decisions I didn't make. 20, 30 years ago uh, still, uh, or, you know, things I said 15 years ago. The other night I woke up in the middle of the night furious uh, that I hadn't said a certain thing during a um, meeting with the management at Lime Pictures where I was filming Hollyoaks Hmm. that would have really won the argument. And I'm thinking, that argument happened eight years ago, Dan. No one cares (laughs) about it. You're not on the show. Give it up. Don't worry about it. And I'm quite a static person, I think. I live very much... It feels sometimes in the moment, almost in a sort of solipsistic, not entirely sociopathic way. I mean, I do believe other people exist and that they have feelings. You know, I'm not mad that way. <laughs> but also, <laughs> I live very much in my head and things can, I can let things slide. I think two of the only saving graces of my life, really, as a person, are Margaret Kevin Smith, my wife, and my children, who, because of who they are and because of their stern qualities, drag me out of that pit of of, of just being in my head and pootling around, you know, through love and energy and 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 just you know making it worthwhile. But also, just also slightly, I'm quite lazy. 
I think. I'm, I don't, I know I should work harder. And sometimes I recognize that and then spend a day hating myself for being so lazy rather than getting on with the work <laughs> that I recognized I should be doing. Or I spend a lot of time going, oh, this, this work is, you know, it's not, it's just not quite right. I just not, I'm not feeling it. Go, well, you can keep not feeling it. It doesn't exist until you actually write something and finish it. It won't exist. And the times I've finished stuff in the last few years, actually it's been all right. And they've, I've done all right for them. It's just literally that. And I honestly don't know whether it is a perfectionism, fear of failure or laziness or a weird combination of all of them. I think I've got the arrogance and I've got, I'm quite arrogant and not enough to actually do anything about it. You know what I mean? I'm, I'm arrogant up to the point where I'm not pushy. I think essentially at my heart, I'm waiting for someone to recognise my genius. And that is so fucking pointless. I recognise it. <laughs> there you oh, are. Rose. Oh, thank you so much. That's, that's very kind. Of, uh, you're just high on all those tankfastics. And this isn't a, you know, sitting... Also, I, I do love a nap. And so if I'm... I'm, I'm, if I'm <laughs> Oh, I don't think the day has gone by since we first had a daughter, 12 years now, where I haven't tried to have a nap a day. So lying in a time capsule for a thousand years might just be quite fun. But also you're just thinking about lost opportunities or things I just shouldn't have said to people or things I should have said to people or, oh, God, it's just so time-consuming. that um, <laughs> I'm going to take really, it all away from you, Dan. I'm I don't take get it anything done. I just don't get anything done. Well, I'm going to put you into the time capsule, but I'm going to give you a choice. It's going to be a really, really comfy sofa. Yeah. And a, and a little blanket you can pull over yourself. Oh, nice, uh, yeah. To just sit there and just sleep your life away. That's yeah, it. Yeah, and yeah. And next to it, it's going to be a desk. Uh, with a computer on uh, it. Uh, yes, yes. Unfortunately, I can't take the regret away, you see. I mean, I'd like to say, I don't want to take everyone's regret away because I think regret is sometimes a useful... I mean, more people should regret things. Yes. Say, you know, <laughs> like maybe or just admit failure and defeat, and, you know, that they were wrong. That generally is a good thing for society, people admitting uh, weaknesses. <laughs> but it's just me. I just really like to get rid of that regret and move on, but also doubly learn from that and just correct my... Basically, I'd like to go through counselling without actually having to do it, if that's possible. So maybe yes. sitting in a dark room for a thousand years might help. I'll get <laughs> high on Tangfastics, have a sugar crush, <laughs> listen to... Uh, listen well, there'll to be a lot actors. of other writers in there to help you. Oh, that's true, the writers' room, yes. So you on, yes. you see? Ah, uh, yes, of course. <laughs> see, if I put this much accidental thought into anything else I'd ever done in the last few years, I might have finished something. But, uh, there we go. Anyway, so this unfinished novel is going in. It's about... Uh, it's about Nazis. Uh, so there we go. Comic novel about Nazis. You did a stand-up show about that, didn't you? Yes, I did a... In 2005, did a stand-up show about my grandfather, who was my mother's father, who was in the Waffen-SS, uh, yeah, and um, died in 1945. And, I mean, that's been a big part of my life, I think, uh, mm. you know, emotionally as well as comedically. I've always found that fascinating place and how do you deal with that? And the way I deal with things anyway is to try and make jokes of them. And I think it's a... It's a topic that is still, I think, worth talking and laughing about because people forget, people, it becomes simplified over time. And I think humour can sometimes bring out the nuances and things in, in ways that dramas not necessarily do. Um, uh, when I did that show in 2005, you know, a comic book about my grandfather, but I don't know to this day, I sort of convinced myself that the part of my argument was that we were talking about the Nazis too much and whether the world didn't need another book about it, and certainly the world didn't need another book written by, a, I'm going to inverted commas, comic about essentially themselves. And um, to this day, I don't know whether that was true, 
Mm. And I was, you know, I was nobly laying down my career for my own moral superiority or B, I was scared or C, I was lazy and I just didn't know how to do it. Mm. Uh, probably a combination of all three to a certain extent. And, and that's another, you know, I, you know, I do regret not following that up. I know, you know, it's not gone anywhere. He's still dead. Um, there's been no, no news about him. Um, so <laughs> I can still write the book. But um, Good, yeah. Well, the great problem is in life, I find, that we can't all be David Baddiel. You know, no. Who does all these things and is extraordinary. And every time he has an idea, he follows it through. And every time he wants to write a book, he writes it. So, you know, you just have to look to him and you're always going to feel It's the follow-through, isn't it? It's, it's, it's the follow-through follow in life. Yeah, yeah. I should teach. I yeah. mean, I hope I can teach my children to finish things. That's the main thing, I think, is just to finish something. You know, I've got notebooks full of the beginnings of things. And I think, A, I've got too many notebooks. Stop buying notebooks to make yourself feel better. <laughs> they don't help. You've got enough notebooks. If it was notebooks, you'd have written it by now. Uh, but also, B, yeah, maybe sometimes just push something towards the end. I mean, if I had to give, you know, advice to those who are left behind, you know, in this new future world when they open up this time capsule, is just to, yeah, put all the shit behind it, you and just get something done, I suppose. I'm so tempted to just cut you off in the middle of that. <laughs> <laughs> all right, I hope that's editable. It's fabulous. You have been listening to My Time Capsule, with me, Mike Fenton-Stevens, and my guest, Dan Tetzel. Thanks for listening. We'll be back with more episodes very soon. So in the meantime, if you'd like to rate this podcast and maybe write a review once you've subscribed to it, obviously, that should satiate some of the empty longing you're bound to feel until we return. Of course, there's always the other 132 episodes we've released already. You can listen to them, or you could follow me and my time capsule on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook and find out what we're up to. That should fill a few moments. You can also fill the void by downloading the theme tune of my time capsule on spotify it was written by past the peas music this has been a cast off production for a cast the producer was john fenton stevens so that's it sorry to abandon you but i've got reading to do it's the new thriller very exciting it's called falling from the window <laughs> it's by eileen dover look i have warned you before to skip this bit don't blame me bye Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. 